You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. All right, so I'm going to minimize, with all that uh, introductory talk, I'm going to minimize my introduction to Steve Case, because you've heard of him before? Yeah. He's chairman and CEO of Revolution Partners now, but before that he had another gig called AOL that really was the precursor to the internet. Uh, a, tr a tremendous icon in computing and online services and, and just uh, technology here in the United States and around the world. Um, his bio is up on the site like we always do, uh, and he has a great philanthropic uh, background, but without further ado, because he's come so far to be with us from Washington, D.C. Let's welcome Steve Case. Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you here on the Stanford campus. And uh, Entrepreneurship Week is terrific. I'm also here for uh, Stanford Parents Weekend. I have a freshman who happens to be in the audience, but I'm not going to call her out and embarrass her. But I would like to get started by having everybody stand up for just a minute. Just make sure you're awake. You can do this. I'm going to take a little picture of you here. Yeah, I am. All right. You're not that good looking a group, I must tell you. All right, here we go. All right, I got the picture. And now I'm going to tweet it. So you're going to be live. And then I'm going to, it's also going to update my Facebook page. So all of you, at least this side of the room, I don't have this iPhone, doesn't have you know, a super wide angle lens. Well, now. Uh, be live. I told Tina Selig I'd help promote Entrepreneurship Week, and I just did. I've had a lot of fun with, uh, with uh, Twitter uh, lately, uh, you know, posting messages from time to time. But I must admit there's some people, including my daughter, that are a little annoyed because I have my Twitter feed automatically connected to my Facebook page. And so she says, with all the postings I've got, I'm kind of overwhelming her news feed. And she's, she's threatening to unfollow me, or unfriend me, I should say. But of course, I think she's a little worried about that, because she might think I will unallowance her. <laughs> anyway, Entrepreneurship Week is a, is a, is a great thing. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific time for uh, Stanford. Uh, but it's particularly important, I think, right now. As, as you all know, this, this, uh, our country is, is struggling a little bit. Uh, sort of an economic uh, malaise, if you will. Uh, and there's only one thing that's going to kind of get it back on, on track, and that's innovation uh, and risk-taking and entrepreneurship. There's a lot of things that can be done and are being done in Washington, D.C., which is, which is where I live. But ultimately, there's only so much the government can do. It really requires the private sector and particularly requires entrepreneurs. As you all know, the, the large companies, once they get to a certain uh, scale, they're, they kind of play defense. They're more focused on protecting what they, they have. It really requires the, the entrepreneurs who are playing offense and, and kind of swinging for the fences to, to do great things. So entrepreneurship is important, not just in terms of creating new services that can improve people's lives or creating value that rewards shareholders or, or uh, uh, employees. It's also important in terms of the underlying economic future of our country. And if, if the third century of America is going to be good as the second century, it's really going to require people like you uh, to take those risks. Hopefully, you'll be some, somebody in the audience creating the, uh, the next Google that went from you know, 10 years ago, probably 10 or 20 employees, to now I think it's 20,000, or AOL, which we started had about 30 employees at the peak 10 years later, I think it was about 12,000 employees. That's great in terms of those companies and their particular success. But if you, you know, multiply those successes you know, by 1,000 or 5,000 and the ripple effect in the economy, it's really quite, uh, quite extraordinary. So it's important both in the context of entrepreneurship as a business-building opportunity, which I'm sure is attractive to, to some of you, but it's also critically important in terms of our, our nation's future, which is why it's, it's great to be here. And in terms of thinking about a, a talk like this, it, it's hard to know really where to start, and I think it's always good to try to you know, keep it simple. I'm sure some of you have heard of the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. So I'm going to try to keep it really simple. I'm basically going to give you essentially one idea to remember. And I'll come back to it a few times in, in the talk, and I'll try to leave you know, a reasonable amount of time for your, your questions. And the, and the idea is basically this. In terms of success uh, in business, probably success to any organization, but particularly success if you're focusing on being an entrepreneur, it requires the three Ps. And the three Ps are people, passion, and perseverance. And if you have all of those together in the right balance, almost anything is possible 
If you don't, nothing is possible. So I think it's really important to focus on uh, people, passion, and perseverance. And rather than kind of go through a traditional lecture and talk about that, I thought I would do it in the context or through the prism of my own story and tell you how I got started and sort of the, the journey I've been on over the past 30 years or so, and perhaps that would be instructive. And I'm going to break it into three parts. The first part was the, the growth of AOL and how the Internet came of age and some of the things I learned there. The second part was when AOL and Time Warner merged, and that didn't work so well, so I'm going to try to keep that part of it short. And then the third part, which is sort of uh, what I've been doing recently, uh, you know, a little bit of, a, I guess, a rebirth or resurgence, kind of going back into the garage and creating new companies and some of the, which is still a work in progress and through this company, Tom mentioned Revolution. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing and, and why we're, we're, we're so you know, passionate and focused on the right people and trying to you know, persevere. So as I said, my story really begins about 30 years ago. I actually was a senior at college at, uh, at uh, Williams on the East Coast. And I remember reading a book uh, called The Third Wave by an author uh, by the name of Alvin Toffler. And Alvin Toffler was viewed as sort of a science fiction guy, kind of a, a futurist, kind of predicting the future. But I remember reading this book and being completely riveted by this notion what he called the electronic frontier, that someday people would be connected through technology to different devices and be able to connect to people and information all around the world. And most people reading that book were thinking of it in a, the context of kind of futuristic science fiction. I remember reading that uh, when I was a senior, as I said, in, in college, and, and, and knowing it was going to happen and being certain it was kind of the next big thing. So I was completely captivated by this, this, this notion. Indeed, when I was a senior and starting to you know, look for jobs and apply, the, the letter I, I accompanied my resume with talked about this, and I wrote this down because it's sort of, uh, sort of interesting. I, my quote, I firmly believe the technological advances in communications will result in our television becoming an information line, newspaper, school, computer, uh, uh, computer referendum machine, and catalog. So that was you know, 30 years ago. The IBM PC hadn't yet even come onto the market, but there's something bubbling with this idea of something happening in this, in this, uh, in this interactive world. By the time, in 1980, when I was uh, graduating, there weren't companies doing this. It was still more of an idea than, than a reality. So there was no companies to join to, to be on this, this, this journey. So I, I went the more of the, the corporate route and for a couple of years worked for Procter & Gamble in, in uh, Cincinnati, a great marketing company, learned a lot of things. Actually, at the same time I was there, a lot of other people have gone on to great things in technology, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft or Meg Whitman for eBay is now uh, running for governor, or Scott Cook, who's the founder of Intuit. We're all kind of hanging around Cincinnati at Procter & Gamble trying to learn about consumer research and marketing and so forth. Did that for a couple of years, and then moved to uh, PepsiCo to the, a division called Pizza Hut, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And the reason I did that was because it was highly entrepreneurial. It was, really it was a company run by the franchisees, almost the opposite of Procter & Gamble, which is more of a kind of top-down, very process-oriented company where all the key decisions were made in Cincinnati. In Pizza Hut, really all the big decisions were made by franchisees in, in different markets. I did that for about a year, but all the while, I was still completely captivated by this idea of interactive services. So my, my day job was really you know, what I was doing, kind of making a living and, and trying to learn some things. But uh, I really, my mind was really more, much more focused on this, this idea of interactive uh, services, but I couldn't quite figure out you know, how to break in. Finally, in 1983, so 27 years ago, I moved to Washington, D.C. to join a company that had a product called GameLine. And again, this is just when PCs were beginning to come on stream. Very few people had an Apple II or an IBM uh, PC, but almost everybody had Atari video game machines. And so the idea of GameLine was you plug a modem it looked like a cartridge, but actually was a communications modem into your Atari game machine and essentially plugged into the phone line and then could connect to the world. Initially, to download video games, almost an in-home arcade, you push a button and the game would be uh, downloaded. But over time, it could move into interactive service email and stock quotes and so forth. So I finally had found my opening, my big opportunity to get into this interactive services world and join that company uh, in uh, the summer of 1983. But this is where I learned about perseverance, because what seemed like such a great idea then, within months, was a disaster at the brink of bankruptcy. 
Uh, just as they were shipping the product, everybody gave it great reviews, everybody was excited, but just as it was kind of coming to market, the Atari video game market really imploded, and suddenly the retailers, Kmart and so forth, no longer wanted any new Atari video game products, let alone some you know, wacky new concept like uh, game lines. So basically canceled their orders, and the ones that took them you know, didn't really promote them, and you know, very few people bought them. I remember at one of the board meetings, one of the investors, which uh, actually a company based here that is I think, highly regarded, probably the best, uh, best known and, and most respected venture capitalist in the area, Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Byers, one of the founders, uh, Frank Caulfield, was on the board of this, this game line company, and at that you know, board meeting in, the, I guess, the winter around 1983, looked at the sales statistics from the retail stores and, and said, you would have thought they would have shoplifted more than that. <laughs> That's how terrible the sales were. So this really was you know, pretty, pretty dicey. My parents, of course, were a uh, little uh, 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 uncomfortable about this new development. They kind of knew what I was doing at Procter & Gamble. Didn't quite, kind of knew what I was doing at PepsiCo. Seemed like real like Fortune 500 companies so that they could explain to their, uh, their friends. Suddenly, I went this entrepreneurial right route to, to GameLine. And you know, within almost months, the thing was... Uh, on the, on the brink of, uh, of defeat. But we stuck with it, and, and thankfully, two of the people I met there and I went off in 1985 and started what became AOL. We redirected it, not surprisingly, away from Atari video game machines and towards home computers, which were beginning you know, to catch on. And we launched in the fall of 1985 our first service, which was for Commodore 64 computers called QuantumLink or, or, or QLink. And it was focused on how do you take that fairly basic computer uh, and try to make it into more of an interactive services terminal. And then we launched a service uh, with Tandy called PC Link and with IBM called Promenade. And that was a big breakthrough because IBM was the first computer. This is back in probably 1988 or 1989. They actually built a modem into a PC. Up until then, the PC manufacturer didn't think anybody cared about the interactive services world. They were going to buy a computer for you know, spreadsheets and word processors and store recipes. Was the idea that people wanted to talk to other people or access information seemed a little a little crazy, it's only something kind of weird hackers might be interested in. But finally, IBM agreed that maybe they should give it a shot and built a modem in, and that was really important. And then we launched a service in partnership with Apple uh, called Apple Link Personal Edition. So that whole period from 1985 to 1990 was really about creating private label services in partnership with PC manufacturers, which was important for us because we had no money. We had a few million dollars of, of venture capital. We were competing at the time with, with a company called Prodigy that was backed by IBM and Sears, and they backed it with $1 billion. So we knew we couldn't compete kind of head-to-head. We had to come up with some other strategy, and partnering with companies and, and, and developing these private label services was a, was a key strategy for this. And, and, and if we look back now, 25 years ago, with the launch of, of QLink and some of the other services, the, there really were a number of breakthroughs that really, in retrospect, were quite uh, significant. The first, it was the, the first online service to use a graphical interface to take advantage of the power of computers to make an interesting service. All the other services, like CompuServe, were text-oriented services. It was the first to offer that software for free, using a razor and blades analogy, actually something I learned at Procter & Gamble. You sort of give away the razor to make money on the blades. Everybody else was selling software. We chose to give the software away and give people a free month with the idea if they liked it, then they would become paying customers. We also were the first company to launch a graphical multiplayer game, something people take for granted now. In 1986, we partnered with George Lucas and Lucasfilm to create something called uh, Habitat. We also were uh, the first company to really, really focus on community. IBM and Sears were focusing on computing and, and, and selling stuff, and other companies like Knight Ritter, a newspaper company, was focused on Viewtron, which is sort of an electronic newspaper. We said the real killer app in this medium and really the soul of this medium was going to be community, people interacting with each other. So we launched chat rooms and message boards, and in the fall of 1985, launched the first instant messaging, IM, which obviously has become a mainstream application, including now with, with texting on phones. So the company really was quite innovative in that, in that time frame. Now, I know you're sitting there, as a lot of you weren't even born at the time I'm, I'm talking about, trying to you know, kind of relate to this. And so I had uh, a lot of the people I work with whip together a little video uh, over the weekend to try to, you know, give you a little bit more context and whoever was going to start that video, if we could, you know, gear that up. But let me give you, before we push, push the button, uh, a little bit of context on it. Basically, it's it tried to make it a little bit kind of back to the future funny, but there's two different interviews uh, with little demos in this short, I think it's three or four minute video. The first was, was filmed in 1987, and it's me in my first ever television interview t- 
talking about QLink. And I was nervous as you could be. I don't think I slept that night. And it was for a show called Computer Chronicles. It actually was filmed not far from here in, in, in San Mateo. And I really thought, you know, the big leagues, of course, Computer Chronicles was only aired on a few PBS stations, but I really thought I had kind of arrived. And I'm trying to explain uh, this service. But more importantly, watch the screen. Because if you, what was then viewed as pioneering in terms of a, a graphical interface to make it easy to use is somewhat laughable looking back 25 years later. And then the second interview was seven, eight years later. I think it was 1995. And PBS, their news hour, did a longer kind of 10-minute piece on AOL. This is really when the Internet was coming of age and kind of AOL was on, on fire. And that kind of gives you more of a sense of what we were doing with AOL in the, in the mid-'90s. Again, in retrospect, you know, 15 years ago, some of the things that were then kind of breakthrough pioneering looked a little... Uh, quaint, but hopefully you will you will enjoy this. Let's roll the tape. We're sending you back to the future. Joining us now in the studio is Steve Case, Vice President of Marketing for Quantum Link. We just launched Quantum Link a year ago in November, and when we entered the market, we saw three problems for consumer users of online services. The first is they were too expensive. The second was they're just too difficult mm -hmm. to use, and the, and the third is they just weren't weren't fun. What we're looking at right now is the Quantum Link main menu. As you see, there's eight different departments on the service. To move around, all you do is use this cursor key and it will flash around to the mm -hmm. different departments. People connection is what we call a social center of the system. That's where people meet in, in rooms like a lobby, which you see here. We can type a message like hi. It comes down at the bottom and simply press return. It will be broadcast to everybody in that mm -hmm. room. Do you know what this means? From the moment you log on, America Online is deliberately designed to be inviting, non-technical, and easy to use. More like a visit to the local shopping mall than a trip through cyberspace. This video console will be channeled into the store of her choice. There, a camera will scan a display of wares, which she will select by push button. Tell us, what is your definition of cyberspace? I don't really like the look of cyberspace. It sounds kind of science fiction-y. I think of this more of interactive services being a new medium. Just as telephone was a medium or television was a medium, the people around the country will be able to plug into these services and access information and communicate with other people and buy products and learn new things. And in this new interactive world, people can interact with the content, interact with the services, and really customize the services to meet their own needs. I mean, when you look down the line into the future, I don't know how far away it is, what, just in your wildest informed imaginings, what do you see? I don't see any reason to believe that over the long run it won't be as important as the telephone was. Nobody really conceived of the idea that one day everybody would have phones. In fact, many people have multiple phones, and it would change the way they communicate with people and buy products and conduct their everyday lives. I think this interactive medium is on that same path, and just as with the telephone, several decades. It'll take several decades here to have that ubiquity, but it, my sense is it's going to happen. It's going to be quite exciting to watch. I noticed that in that second interview, somebody must have told me, talk slowly, because I, I feel like I'm like, drugged there watching it right now. <laughs> Talk slowly, make sure you enunciate. You know. Is he asleep or is he awake? Anyway, it was, uh, it, I, I talked to you earlier about uh, the private label service strategy. I want to talk a little bit more about what we do with Apple Link, because I think this is also ties in with one of those, those P's, which is, is perseverance. We actually, uh, in 1987, entered into an agreement with Apple to license their brand name to create Apple Link. They'd never licensed their brand name before, so it was a big breakthrough that we were able to you know, convince them to do this, particularly because we were you know, a little company there with you know, probably 75 employees at, at, at best. So we were all excited. We thought this was just you know, terrific. Apple Lang, we're kind of, we're, we've made it. Uh, and we launched the service the next year in 1988, uh, and we basically pulled the plug on the service the next year in 1989. And the reason is, although it was, yeah, we thought at the time a great coup that we were able to do this deal with Apple and get their, 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 their brand name, Almost from the day we signed the deal, they hated it. 
because they really got uncomfortable about the, the fact that some other company had their, their brand name and they were uncomfortable about the way we were marketing the product. They were selling software through retail stores. We were giving software uh, away. There are a lot of different things that were just kind of, we were kind of at loggerheads. So actually, after just you know, less than a year after we launched the service, they basically said we're just too uncomfortable. They paid us millions of dollars basically to go away. They just decided they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to be in this anymore. Uh, so then we had a real crisis on our hands. It's not bad that we got some, some, some money out of it, but that had been our strategy, partner with these private label you know, services in, in conjunction with PC manufacturers. Apple was emerging as a, as a real uh, force, and suddenly that deal blew up in our, our face. So that was a real, real crisis for the company, and it led to a, a new strategy. We said, look, we can no longer rely on these partnerships. We really need to stand our own two feet and kind of have our own uh, brand. We had no idea what to call it. Uh, we had a little contest internally, and, and, and America Online became the, the name that emerged from that. We, I mostly picked it because since we had no money to market it, at least explain what we did. Some of the other services at the time, like Prodigy and Compass, were not quite sure what it was. America Online was you know, pretty clear what, what we were up to, so that would be helpful in terms of uh, our relatively limited uh, marketing budget. Uh, and so we relaunched the service in 1989, 1990, essentially as America Online, and as you know, quickly kind of got nicknamed by, by really our members as, as, as AOL, so it evolved to be more and more uh, AOL. And that's really when AOL started coming uh, of age, so partly because we had our own brand and standing our own two feet, but also some things were starting to break in our favor instead of, you know, as we saw for most of the 80s, kind of kind of fighting the tape. People didn't really believe in what we were doing. They didn't really understand what we were doing. I'd go to technology conferences like PC Forum, and there'd be 500 people there. I'd be the only person who was focused on online service. Everybody else was talking about semiconductors and, and you know, different you know, devices and, and uh, Ethernet and so forth, and I was kind of a little wacko in the corner talking about online services. Someday people will do this. Someday people will do that. And most people you know, really didn't, didn't believe. But as the 90s broke, people things started breaking in our favor. A big breakthrough was in 1992, and again, I know it seems silly to many youth you know, at this point, but up until 1992, it was illegal to connect a commercial service like AOL to the Internet. The Internet had been funded by the government, and up until 1992, it was really for non-commercial uses. You could use it in educational institutions, government contractors could use it, government itself could use it, but you couldn't actually do businesses on it. And Congress passed a law in 1992 that basically allowed companies like ours to connect to the Internet. That was a big force not long after the World Wide Web was created, the, the web browser was, uh, was developed, and that's when really things started uh, taking off. So it was really 1992 when there was a breakthrough. We, we started the company in 1985, and 1992, we actually went public, and we're the first Internet company to go public, but even then, people didn't quite understand what we did. And in fairness, after seven years, we had, I think it was 184,000 customers. We had something like you know, 70 employees. And the market value of the company on that first day of the public offering was $70 million. So it was just another little company going public. Nobody you know, particularly you know, knew or cared uh, what this company was up to. Needless to say, the rest of the 90s, things really got, got on fire. And, and by 2000, uh, we had market cap had gone from... $70 million to over $100 billion. We'd gone from 185,000 customers to I think it was at its peak about 20 million customers and gone from you know, less than a couple hundred employees to over 10,000 employees all in a, you know, kind of an eight-year period. We liked that period. That was a good period. <laughs> and then the question is, what do we do next? That we had, we had done, a, I think, a, a great job in creating a service that really struck a chord with a mainstream audience. We really created an easy-to-use, useful, fun, affordable service. And as people started learning about the Internet and they wanted to get connected, the majority of Americans started their Internet experience with AOL. As a result, we had created what was sort of the dominant company and at the time was the hottest industry, arguably, in the world, and also created a very valuable company. Actually, if you look at the stock market in the 1990s, AOL was the number one stock in terms of performance, bigger than Microsoft or Cisco in terms of if you bought it at the IPO and kept it that whole period, what your, your return on it. So everything was going great. But we had a few problems. And that's why as we, as we entered the next decade, we were really focused on, on where we, we were going to go from here. The first was it was great that we suddenly had this you know, $100 billion valuation, but we knew it was not trivial to sustain it. 
that I can't remember exactly what our you know, multiple of revenue and earnings was, but it was at least 100. It was, it was, uh, it was hard to, to see how you would sustain that. So looking to use that currency to acquire other assets and diversify the next became important. The second is we had really dominated in the first wave of the Internet, which is a narrow band, connecting people through telephone lines and through their computers to these devices. But we didn't have a clear path to broadband or wireless, which we knew was the next big thing. And so the question is, how do we partner or merge with a company that had a broadband capability? And frankly, from a personal standpoint, I was getting a little worn out. I'd been running pretty fast for, for the better part of a, a decade. It's kind of like being on a bucking bronco, and the, and the, and the speed kept getting accelerating. And I, I, I really enjoyed the early stage for the first decade when it was kind of pioneering and you're making things up as you go. The second decade when it really was scaling and, and, and it was just more about, frankly, being an icon and kind of go making speeches and traveling around the world. Some part of that was fun, but it actually wasn't as fun for me as the, as the first part of the decade. And frankly, also, I had young, a young family, and I recognized it was probably time to focus a little bit more on that. So from a personal standpoint, I was trying to figure out what the next phase would be for me. For a variety of reasons, and there are others as well, uh, exactly 10 years ago, 10 years ago last month, AOL merged with Time Warner. And we thought this was the perfect deal because it essentially would ensure AOL's transition to broadband, because Time Warner was the largest owner of cable systems that had a broadband capacity, and also the largest owner of multimedia content, CNN and Time Magazine and so forth, that we thought would be valuable in a broadband world. We also thought that Time Warner's weakness could be addressed by AOL, because they had very strong positions in traditional media, but didn't have their own path to a digital future. And the combination and the synergies that could come from bringing these companies together really would be great and kind of drive accelerated growth and revenues and profits and everything would be terrific. When we announced the merger, everybody agreed. Indeed, some of our competitors, Microsoft and Disney and others, basically marched on Washington to try to block the merger because they thought this company would just be too dominant and somehow would control the future. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it, you know, it took a year to get it approved because of all the different, different uh, lobbying forces that were uh, out there at the time. But finally, we were able to, to bring this together and, and, and uh, launched it. As part of that, bringing it together, I did agree to step down as CEO and become kind of chairman of the, of the board, which was, frankly, an important way to get the deal done, but also satisfied my own desire to play less of a day-to-day -day role and be playing much more of a... A strategic role. So what happened? If you, if you, if these two companies, two great companies with great, great histories coming together at the turn of the century to create this new company that would really drive convergence and help reinvent digital music and a whole wave of, of, of services. Uh, yet, you know, 10 years later, people look back at what was the largest merger and still is the largest merger in history. At the end of the day, when we announced the merger, the market value of the combined company was $350 billion dollars. And the announcement was the, you know, such a big deal as the lead on all the network news. I remember the, week, uh, the weekend after uh, we announced it, I was walking through Dulles Airport and looked at the newsstand. And essentially, every cover of any you know, Time and Newsweek and Businessweek and Fortune were all you know, focused on this merger. Everybody thought this was the next big thing and almost guaranteed to work. Indeed, that's why there's so much lobbying to, to oppose it. Yet now it's looked back as the worst merger in history. It is. So what happened? As I dissected, there's a few things that I think are important lessons to learn as you think about your entrepreneurial you know, futures. The first, and this was only a, a, a factor, but it's worth mentioning, there was a perfect storm of things that really were unfortunate, a, a lot outside of our control. Almost immediately after the merger closed, the economy went into recession. Almost immediately, therefore, the advertising revenue with a core revenue stream of the company was kind of in free fall. And the internet boom that had been driving market value in the, in the later part of the decade really became the internet bust. Some even called it sort of the, the internet's nuclear winter. So a variety of, of kind of broader systemic things uh, were happening, but that really only accounts for, for part of it. I think that did translate to some things that lay, led to some anger and resentment it, since we actually ended up in retrospect doing this deal at the peak of the internet values. Uh, and it, as I recall, uh, AOL, at the time of the merger, was twice as valuable as Time Warner, even though Time Warner had four times more revenue and earnings. So it was a little bit of a, of a mismatch. And when things slowed down, the people on the Time Warner side were 
none too happy about that. And so that, that created a, a factor. But the core of it goes back to these three Ps, people, passion, and perseverance. On the people side, what seemed like a good idea quickly became a, a culture clash. People were you know, focused on the wrong things, not really focused on innovation, more focused on their own, their own issues. On the uh, passion side, frankly, a lot of what drove AOL in the 90s was lost. Some of the, you know, the most creative, pioneering, innovative people kind of wandered off. It became more corporate. Uh, and on the perseverance side, that, that be, partly because things had corrected the internet sector, there was a sense that maybe this internet really was just a, a fleeting phenomenon. It wasn't really a sustainable phenomenon. So instead of continuing to invest in innovating, their tendency was to you know, back away from it. One, remember one of the last deals I did before I stepped down was we invested uh, in Google. We bought 5% of Google for you know, essentially next to nothing. But the stake was sold immediately when Google went public. If they'd held the stake, that 5% in Google would be worth more today than AOL is today. But their sense was just kind of, you know, let's, let's monetize this and, and move on. So it was disappointing at a variety of levels. I, even though I didn't have any day-to-day -day role as chairman of the company, it was sort of the, the visible uh, target, frankly, and decided uh, about eight years ago to step down as, as, as chairman. I thought it would be good for the company to have a fresh start and be able to kind of look at, you know, focus more on the future than the, the past. And also, frankly, for me, it was, it was recognizing that uh, having a role where you have, you're kind of held responsible but don't really have the day-to-day -day authority to make things happen is, is kind of not a great place to, to find yourself. So anyway, I left, and it was a disappointment because we had such a great run up until then, and, and the, the merger was launched with such fanfare and promise. As I think back on it, it's not just the three Ps to keep in mind, Don. It's also what Thomas Edison said, which I think summarizes this merger in five words, which is vision without execution is hallucination. <laughs> we had a really good idea, but we didn't focus you know, with the right people, the right passion, the right perseverance on executing that vision. So the question for me was, what do I do next? And I was, I don't know, young, 42, 43 at the time, so I wasn't quite, you know, wasn't quite ready to kind of give it up and like, golf or something like that because, I, because I'm not any good at golf. Uh, so I was trying to figure out what I do next. And as I reflected on that run over 20 years, as I said earlier, I, I realized I really liked that first decade, the pioneering decade more, and so I decided to launch a new company, Revolution. And our focus, our mission, is to invest in people and ideas that can change the world. And interestingly, that's exactly the same mission we have at the Case Foundation, which we launched my wife, Jean, runs. Invest in people and ideas that can change the world. Sometimes you can change the world by investing through the prism of for-profit businesses, and sometimes you can change the world by investing through the prism of not-for-profit uh, uh, philanthropic organizations, but the core idea is the same. On the revolution side, we focused in the last uh, five, six years on a variety of different industries that we think are ripe for disruption. We really want to take risk and, and swing for the fences and, and try new things. We recognize we'll fail sometimes, but we'd rather you know, take those risks. And frankly, right now, they, there's too, much, uh, too many entrepreneurs, too much venture capital that isn't taking the big risk. They're taking kind of a little risk, and, and it's more of a built-to-flip mentality as opposed to a built-to-last, change-the-world mentality, which, which troubles me a little bit. It's actually become, particularly in the Internet space, a little bit like the entertainment business. It's relatively easy to produce a record. It's actually relatively easy now to produce a movie, but it's relatively hard to build a big audience and a significant franchise. So the, the barriers to entry have come down. Now anybody can create a website, uh, but as a result, there's significant competition, and the you know, real battle is not just about the product. It's really a battle for attention and being able to sustain that. And as a result, there are relatively small amounts of money go into these, these companies, which is fine, but they generally don't have the ability to take significant risks. Our strategy is a little different. We want to, we're willing to take significant risk. Indeed, we want to find the opportunities that are going to take you know, five or ten years to really come, through, come to reach fruition. An example is we we're focusing the transportation sector. We're back to a company called Zipcar, which is on the Stanford campus, so some of you may be familiar with it. It's a very basic idea that if you live in a city, you shouldn't own a car, but occasionally you need access to a car, so we'll park those cars in a neighborhood, and you'll use them whenever you want. It's more environmentally friendly. It's more economically sound for, for, for people. People in most cities will spend $1,000 a month to have the car. If you look at the, you know, the insurance and the parking and so forth, and use it four or five times. So it's crazy to own a car. You know, Zipcar is a much, much better way to go, and the company's really taken off. It has over $100 million in revenue now. I think you know, something like hundreds of thousands of people are sharing probably 6,000, 7,000 cars right now. 
and it's really the, the early days in terms of that car sharing business. I wouldn't be surprised if the whole automobile business didn't migrate from a product business to more of a service business, a little bit more like cell phones. You know, you, you, right now you buy a car and then you just pay for gas. I could imagine models like Zipcar will become much more significant when as Detroit tries to reinvent itself. Maybe it's more like you get access to the car at, at a lower price and there's sort of an ongoing monthly you know, service fee. But even better yet, you only use it when you need it like, uh, like Zipcar. So that's one example. We've also invested in a number of, of healthcare companies. We think healthcare is broken in this country. We think the government can do part of it, but the private sector needs to do its part as well. And ultimately, we think it's about empowering consumers to understand their health and be able to make healthier choices by educating them and giving them tools and also using technology as a supporting tool. So we funded several companies there. The most visible one is a company called Everyday Health, which is now one of the leaders. I won't talk too much about them because they actually a couple weeks ago filed for a public offering. So we're in what they're called a quiet period right now, so I don't want to you know, get them in trouble. And also back to company in the resort business called Exclusive Resorts. The idea that it's kind of crazy to own a second home that you only use a few weeks a year. Why don't you join a club that gives you access to hundreds of homes and, and dozens of destinations. Uh, we also funded a company called Revolution Money that was really a financial services uh, company. And this is actually a great lesson in, in perseverance. When it initially was launched about four years ago, everybody was very excited by the idea of creating a new kind of credit card, digital payments, sort of like what PayPal is doing around this flexible platform for online and offline and debit and credit and so forth. And you know, Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley and all these companies were investing in it. And then suddenly, about two years ago, the financial services market started imploding and all these companies pulled back and, and the company was really in, a, in, a, in, a, in serious straits. But they stuck with it and the investors stuck with it. And just last month, American Express bought that company for $300 million. So I think it's a good example of what seemed very bleak just a couple of years ago. They were able by sticking, sticking to it uh, to build a significant company that I think will power American, much of American Express's strategy for the, for the coming decade. So that's sort of my story. The, the, the early days of AOL and trying to you know, with this you know, crazy little notion 30 years ago after reading the third wave about the interactive services electronic frontier, you know, playing a role in building that, making that a mainstream kind of everyday phenomenon, you know, followed by the second phase of the, the merger and trying to deal with some of the fallout from that, and this third phase, really getting back into being an entrepreneur and doing pioneering things in partnership with lots of different uh, uh, entrepreneurs. So in closing, before I open it for a question, I just want to you know, and where I started, which is the, the notion that an entrepreneurship really is critical to this country. It's not something just to do to make a buck or to create an innovative service, although both of those are, are fine and indeed important. It really is the underlying engine of innovation that will ensure a bright future for this country. So it actually is a patriotic thing to do, not just an economically you know, motivated thing to do. And that's very important to, uh, to understand uh, the second is that I actually think we're entering into what may be a golden era for entrepreneurship. For the reasons I mentioned, a lot of the big industries and the big companies are playing defense. They're more focused on protection and, and, and defense, not, not attacking an opportunity. And that's going to create enormous opportunities across, I think, our entire economy for bold entrepreneurs swinging for the fences. And finally, just want to remind you about those three Ps, because for me, I found them to be uh, very important. I try to reassess from time to time in terms of what we're focusing on or what the companies we're invested in are focusing on. Do you have the right people that are aligned around the right you know, priorities? Is there an underlying passion, not just from the founder or CEO, but that's really spread through the whole company? And when times get tough, and inevitably they do, they have the fortitude to see it through, that, that perseverance factor. So those three Ps for me have been uh, a very important. And let me end there and start taking your questions. Thank you. Blank. I teach uh, several entrepreneurship classes uh, for Tom Byers and Tina Seelig in the STBB program. I also teach a class called the Spirit of Entrepreneurship, which Tom mentioned, which surrounds this class. Uh, for those of you who are, who are enrolled, you know what we do is we listen to the ETL speakers, we analyze their business models of their companies, and try to understand how their companies got from one or two people in a room to a large and major corporation. Um, and the Spirit of Entrepreneurship class gets typically the first couple of questions. Uh, given the size of the audience today, I'll just hold it to one and then we'll open it up to uh, others. Um, and so Steve, just kind of segueing into uh, the entrepreneurial spirit, you started your career as a product manager in some of the best training that one could ever get in large corporations. 
Can you remember your first couple weeks or month in your startup, 1983, thinking, what is it I didn't learn at Procter & Gamble or Pizza Hut, because none of this works like that? What was the kind of entrepreneurial disconnect you had? Well, I should give you a little bit more context. I, I, um simple answer is companies like Procter & Gamble have, have developed over a century really good processes for, for kind of managing, uh, but they tend to be focused on incrementalism. So they, they, any idea you want to do, it takes some time to test. I remember uh, one of the, I was working on the beauty care side of the business, hair conditioners, things like that, and we were going to test having on a package instead of what's called a price bag. Instead of 20 cents off, it was going to be 25 cents off, and instead of you know, like orange, it was going to be yellow relatively basic things. To, at, at the time, they've changed this. To do that would take two years to do a test market to see which color was better and whether 25 cents really lifted sales versus 20 cents. So it really is focused on really fine-tuning things, and they've been very effective. They, they were still the largest, most successful consumer you know, packaged goods company in the world. But it, it wasn't, as you say, kind of really honed on, on entrepreneurship. Thankfully, when I was you know, growing up and, and, and a teenager, I was involved in a lot of different you know, businesses and starting different things. None of them were successful of any, any real scale, but I had that experience of kind of starting things and, 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 trying to, and taking risks there. So for me, the decision to go to Procter & Gamble was a decision, even though I had this leaning towards entrepreneurship and this passion towards interactive services, that I knew uh, it would be a smart thing to do and I'd learn a lot by doing it. So it's almost for me like going to a business school or something. I should say I come out of Williams, but I did apply to Stanford Business School. I got rejected, so therefore I had to go start a business. And that's where you're going to be a donor to the engineering school, right? Yeah, well, we'll see, we'll see. So we'll, we'll open it up to the audience now. Questions, yes? Uh, on there, mics, uh, mics around, microphones? Yeah, there's some mics in the, okay. in the if you, you want to stand up, up and, stand up and uh, just so they mics, get it on uh, tape. And so for anybody that has questions, why don't you guys line up at the mics, both sides of the uh, aisles. Hey, uh, I'm wondering if, uh, with consumer products and services, how important would you say luck is compared to other factors in being successful? Well, I think, I think luck plays a factor, but one of the truisms is if you're working really hard and showing up a lot, you know, those people tend to be luckier. So there is something for being at the right place at the right time, but there's also something for... You know, kind of peeking around corners and trying to understand where to position yourself so you're, you're in the right place. Uh, and so it's a, it's a mix of factors. Anybody who's been successful would credit some, some degree of luck to it. At the same time, to suggest that, well, it's all about luck, so I guess it doesn't really matter what I do. I'll either get, you know, I'll strike gold or I'm not, I won't, obviously, isn't, isn't, isn't true either. So it's, a, it's a, a mix of factors. But a lot of it is just being aware, paying attention and kind of scanning the, 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 the universe, sort of looking for something like pattern recognition, looking for opportunity, and getting a sense of where you should be going, and, and at some point, a sense that now's the time to really you know, slam down the, the accelerator. Yes, on this side. Uh, I was a retail stock over in the late 90s. I just want to first of all say, mahalo, I made a lot of money on the AOL stock. Thank you. Um, secondly, uh, right now I'm in online education thinking, uh, is that going to be a great equalizer for third world countries and people in disadvantaged communities to gain access to higher education? And how long do you think that will take to gain traction? Uh, lastly, uh, I know you were at Twinho School with Barack Obama at the same time. Was he actually a juvenile delinquent the way he says he was? Ha! <laughs> okay, well, let me take the last question first. I, I did go to Punahou School in, in Hawaii. I was a, I, we were in high school together. I was a senior when uh, the president was a freshman. Uh, it's a pretty big school, so I can't say we're like best buddies. I kind of vaguely recall playing basketball with him a few times, but I don't think we ever had any classes together, and, and so I can't really you know, comment on his story. I do know when he started running for president, I was, you know, somebody figured out that we'd gone to high school together, so I was getting all these calls from New York Times, like, tell me some story about you know, Barack Obama. And I, I, was, I was tempted to make something good up, but I, <laughs> I finally decided that you know, maybe that benefit him if I came up with a real doozy, but uh, I decided you know, to be honest and say, well, I actually don't, don't really remember him. <laughs> but they, I think he's, he obviously ran a great campaign, and he's, he's, he's had a tough first year, as most presidents do, particularly in a difficult environment like this, but 
But I think the, the perspective he actually brings, in part from being in Hawaii, as you know, growing up there, it's sort of a more of a melting pot, and you know, I think there's more of a sense of how do you bring people together than perhaps some other areas of the country. So hopefully that bodes well. In terms of education, I do believe technology can be an important equalizer. Indeed, one of the initiatives our foundation did about a decade ago was to you know, create a, a technology centers in, in over a thousand community centers, boys and girls clubs and schools and churches called Power Up, because we really wanted to make sure we bridged the digital divide and we didn't have these technology tools only available people could afford them and actually potentially exacerbate that divide. Uh, and there's still some divide today, but it was, was less than it was. And the ability for people anywhere around the world to access information, you know, courses like, like, uh, uh, like this one and, and, and have almost a ubiquitous access to information obviously is important. At the same time, you can't underestimate the importance of learning the basic skills particularly in terms of how to digest, absorb, analyze, and communicate information, which is going to continue to be the, you know, the bedrock of education. And, and I think it's going to continue to be done in a physical space. So making sure our elementary schools and high schools and so forth really are in better shape in the future than they are today is an important part of that. So technology, an add-on, I do think it leads to much more of a sense of lifelong learning. It's not so much what you learn when you're in school. It's really learning some basics, learning how to, you know, how to think and communicate but then having access to information really for the rest of your life. So it is a tremendous tool, but we can't simply point to technology and think that somehow we've, we've solved the problems of education, which obviously are much more, more complicated and, and, and challenging. Yes? I was going to say, what do you see the biggest problems in, in, in the opportunities around disruption, around healthcare, education, and also power, and, and also the other way is monetization on the Because there's problems, but there's also big opportunity for cost savings. If we can get rid of most of the buildings, yeah, the answer to the question is on all three, it's sort of the same, which is our country and many other countries have built infrastructure over the past century to basically power some of these different industries, whether it be the physical structures in terms of schools and how schools are organized and how long you go to school and how teachers are organized and so forth, which is hard to change. Healthcare, particularly in this country, is basically focused around who pays. It's less about the provision of service. It's more about who pays. And unfortunately, it's not really a health care system. It's really a sick care system. It's not so much focused on keeping you healthy. It's more triage when you get sick. And the motivation incentives are more about dealing with, with sick care. And we need to change that, that psychology and that culture uh, so people really are genuinely focused on health, not just focused on dealing with uh, uh, with illness. And power is similar as well. There's, you know, huge infrastructure has been built that has been great and served us well for the, the past century, but new technologies are emerging. And there are obviously many companies around the world that are doing really interesting things that really can start from scratch. And I think most people recognize that if they had the opportunity to start from scratch, whether it be communication systems or power systems or what have you, they would take a different path than, than we took 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Obviously, a lot, has, a lot has changed. Indeed, if you look at what's happening in developing countries, they're placing fundamentally different bets. Uh, in, 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 the, in the case of communications, for example, nobody's bothering to dig up the streets to run wires, whether it be for a telephone or cable. They're completely embracing uh, wireless. So the challenge is how do you bridge what we've built and invested gazillion dollars in over the past century uh, to be uh, more nimble and flexible for, for the future. Yes? Hi, Steve, you know, um, I have a two-part question. The first, you mentioned luck, and I think luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And, you know, having said that, there's also a lot in it that's timing. And you were very fortunate, as you described the years and how the Internet, the advent of the Internet, and your timing was just spot on. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that somehow have wonderful ideas, have wonderful passion, have great people, but the timing is just the wrong time and the company doesn't work. And so the second part of the question is, I want you to obviously address the first part, is that you spoke of some uh, companies that didn't work at Revolution Partners and, and the ones that didn't work when you first started in entrepreneurship. What I've always found interesting is when a company does well, you know why it does well. And maybe it's the people and the passion and, and the other things. But when it, uh, when it when, I'm sorry, you, you necessarily don't know why it does extremely well. It just does well, okay? What I have always found is that you learn the most from something that fails. And what I'd love to hear is, are, are some of the ventures that you've done, that you've attempted, that didn't work, whether in your own personal life before uh, AOL and then with Revolution Partners. Well, a bunch of, bunch of things uh, there. I would say uh, 
this notion of luck and, and sort of having opportunity aligned, obviously that, as I said before, you know, plays a role. At the same time, uh, perseverance really does matter. As I was, I was trying to explain, in the mid-90s, uh, AOL was suddenly a, a, a big deal, almost like it seemed like an overnight sensation. Came out of nowhere, was you know, kind of the, you know, one of the hottest companies in the, in the country. But we were a 10-year in the making overnight sensation. Because we really had started more than a decade before people even knew what we were doing. And there are a lot of periods in that, you know, doing that development that we had tough times. We went through layoffs and lost some you know, partnerships like Apple and so forth. Uh, so it wasn't like we just woke up one day, hung up a shingle, and the world beat a path to our door. It, there are lots of ups and downs. And there were a number of people who were, were there in the early days who basically bagged it. They said, you know, it's too risky. I don't believe in this thing anymore. But thankfully, there were enough that stuck with it that really believed in the idea and were passionate about the idea, and eventually things, things developed. So I think one of the lessons is, going back to perseverance, if you really believe in the idea, figure out a way to stay in the game. Now, that may mean you know, cutting your costs by having to go through some, some difficult things just to make sure you can you know, survive and live to fight another day, but don't give up if you really believe uh, in the idea, because eventually, if, if you're right on the core assumptions, that eventually the market will, will open up and you'll have that, that opportunity. Way too often people kind of you know, give up too early. They, just, they, they hit a bump in the road and, uh, or maybe a you know, kind of a brick wall. Uh, they're, great entre- they're, great, they're great entrepreneurs. Just figure out a way to you know, get around the wall, get over the wall, or just knock the wall down. They don't, they don't, they don't let anything uh, you know, get in their way. What about failures? Well, I think the... The biggest failure, obviously, what I talked about was the AOL Time Warner merger, which was a, a, you know, what I think was still a great idea that was you know, terribly executed, and that was a great disappointment. I have others, too, but that's the big doozy. Yes? So I'm wondering, uh, your, your company, it's exclusive resorts. I'm wondering if there's more similarities or differences between running that and running AOL and what those are. Well, there's, some, there's some, uh, a number of different differences. I mean, yeah. first of all, I don't run exclusive resorts day to day. I spend you know, maybe 10% of my time on it because I'm involved in a variety of different companies. AOL, I was running 110% of the, uh, of the time. Uh, the, the second is exclusive resorts is more about, about acquiring real estate and packaging a set of services around you know, that real estate. Uh, so it's much more of a personalized kind of service and, and, and frankly, more of a luxury market just because of the nature of, of that, the, the market we're targeting. AOL always about, was about the mainstream, really how do you connect with a mainstream audience. So we're trying to drive prices down and really make it as, as simple as possible uh, for people to use these the services. I remember right, one of the early calling you know, cries in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, was we need to make this simple enough for my mom to use. My mom was a little offended by this, you know, this you know, analogy, but it was you know, trying to communicate to our team that this, is, this world of technology is complicated and scary and threatening to most people. We need to figure out a way to simplify and package this so real people uh, you know, could use it. And the final one uh, is that once you were able to break through on, on AOL, it really was about adding additional capacity, adding additional servers so you could scale relatively quickly. A physical business like an exclusive resorts or a Zipcar or other things require a little bit more of a, of a, of a pacing in terms of, of, of the growth. You can't just kind of push a button and you know, suddenly add uh, you know, 10,000 more cars and 10,000 more you know, parking spots uh, overnight. It requires more, more planning. Well, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.